0: Um, We are looking at the book of Esther at Salem, and um, today the passage is from chapter 2, and uh, I'll talk a little bit about chapter 1 in a moment, but I'm just going to read this chapter right now, and uh, hopefully you can um, just catch from the narrative a little bit about what's gone before. But um, this is Esther 2, 5 through 20. At that time, there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and was a descendant of Kish and Shemai. His family had been among those who, with King Jehoiakim of Judah, had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. As a result of the king's decree, that was a decree that uh, his wife would no longer be his wife and that that find a new wife. As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Hegai's care. Haggai was very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. He quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with beauty treatments. He also assigned her seven maids, specially chosen from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. Every day Mordecai would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to find out about Esther and what was happening to her. Before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatment, six months with oil of myrrh, followed by six months with special perfumes and ointments. When it was time for her to go to the king's palace, she was given her choice of whatever clothing or jewelry she wanted to take from the harem. That evening she was taken to the king's private rooms, and the next morning she was brought to the second harem where the king's wives lived. There she would be under the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, in charge of the concubines. She would never go to the king again unless he had especially enjoyed her and requested her by name. Esther was the daughter of Abihail, who was Mordecai's uncle, Mordecai had adopted his younger cousin, Esther. When it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she accepted the advice of Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the harem. She asked for nothing except what he suggested. And she was admired by everyone who saw her. Esther was taken to King Xerxes of the royal palace in the winter of the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women... He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. To celebrate the occasion, he gave a great banquet in Esther's honor for all the nobles and officials, declaring a public holiday for the provinces and giving generous gifts to everyone. Even after all the young women had been transferred to the second harem and Mordecai had become a palace official, Esther continued to keep her family background and nationality a secret. She was still following Mordecai's directions just as she did when she lived in this home. So um, we're looking at this very controversial book at Salem, and um, it's controversial because uh, nowhere in the book does it mention the name God. Uh, Martin Luther didn't even want it in the Bible because he thought it was so secular. And then you add that uh, to that fact the the fact that it's all taking place in the empire. It's all taking place in the Persian Empire, most of it in the fortress of Susa in the capital. Add to that the fact that one of the main characters is this man named uh, Xerxes, King Xerxes the Great of Persia. Perhaps the most powerful man ever to exist in the world up to that time. And if you've ever seen the movie 300... And I hope not many of you have. But if you have seen the movie 300, uh, he was the really bad guy, the really huge guy with the piercings and the gold chains everywhere, the one who thought he was the god, a god. So uh, Xerxes was not only proud and arrogant, he was also a playboy. He was a Hugh Hefner, a fool. And so the book has a lot of sordid details that you wouldn't expect to find in the Bible. Um, Last week, his Wife, Queen Vashti during a great banquet that had gone on for a whole week when he and his friends were all drunk Uh, uh, Xerxes commanded her to come in to the room uh, and be a sex object for he and his friends and rightfully she refused and he divorced her and he set up this disgusting beauty contest that we just read about it's like a sick version of The Bachelor and it says in verse 2 Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Notice that virgins. They're all virgins. Many of them. Gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king, which is another way of saying good in bed, be queen instead of Vashti. And Esther is chosen because she was, verse 7, very beautiful and lovely. So... They went around to every city and province and looked for those beautiful virgins. They brought them all to Sousa. Xerxes slept with each one of them, and then he chose his favorite. And you might think to yourself, why in the world is a story like this in the Bible? This sounds more like something from a Martin Scorsese film, something very dark, kind of disgusting, sexually inappropriate. Uh, Why not the cleaned-up Christian version of this film? Uh, One Night with a King. I don't know if you've seen that. But uh, not quite the same plot. Um, very much in the genre of modern Christian movies. But uh, the Bible's not like that. It doesn't ever clean things up. Uh, it doesn't white out certain parts. It doesn't edit out the disturbing details. It never does. In fact, uh, the Bible's not so much a, a bunch of stories of good people and saints whose lives we're supposed to imitate. It's more like... Uh, bunch of stories of sinful people like us uh, who don't love God very much and don't love our neighbors very well. Uh, People who God shows unmerited favor to constantly and puts his love on them and redeems them. So it's a story of a God who's a prodigal God who uh, indiscriminately shows favor to people like Moses, a murderer, or David, an adulterer, or Peter, Self righteous coward, or Paul, an angry, violent man, or me who is selfish and impatient. Just ask my wife. And God blesses sinners richly. He uh, shows them this hessid love, is the uh, Old Testament word for it covenant faithfulness. And because He blesses sinners and loves sinners, we can trust Him. We can put our souls in his hands. Even when things are terrible, even when we have received terrible news, we can uh, say to God, I-, I give my life to you. I abandon my soul to your providence. So I want to look at those two things. First, uh, well, actually, second, favor. Uh, first, trust and vulnerability. Uh, first, the, the trust... And the vulnerability of Esther. And then second, after that, uh, looking at the way that God favored her. So those two things, vulnerability and favor. First of all, vulnerability. If you notice um, in verse 7, you see how entirely vulnerable this young woman was. She had her name changed. So in Hebrew, her name was Hadassah, which is a beautiful word meaning myrtle tree. It's a word for redemption. Redemption. It's a sweet word. And then she's changed to Ishtar, which in Persian is the goddess of love, like Venus or Aphrodite. So her name is changed, maybe at this very moment, Hadassah, who was then called Esther, verse 7. And then not only that, verse 8, she was brought to the king's harem. So she and many other concubines are now people who just go in to sexually please the king. Uh, think of a young peasant girl in Thailand who's been caught up into sex trafficking and uh, now works in a brothel. That's, that's a similar depiction uh, of a human being that is like Esther. And um, if you're like me, you would be thinking, well, why didn't she just refuse? Why didn't she just say, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to die, but I'm not going in to sleep with that horrible man? Do with me what you will. And um, I think the reason is because uh, if she had done that, given the way that Xerxes treated Vashti, it's it's likely that Xerxes not only would have killed Esther, but then would have gone after her people like Mordecai. Uh, She had to hide her identity as a Jew, which just shows how there was a lot of anti-Semitism out there. Um, And so uh, if she had refused him, it's possible That he would have not only killed her, but would have tried to kill her people as well. And so she puts her life in God's hands. Verse 13. When it was time for her to go to the king's palace, she was given her choice of whatever clothing or jewelry she wanted to take from the harem. So it's already been months and months of beauty treatments. And then on the big night, the biggest moment of her life, when uh, she's either going to be pleasing to the king or not pleasing. If she's not pleasing, she goes into the harem forever and may not ever sleep with anyone her whole life. Uh, Verse 14, she would never go to the king again unless he had especially enjoyed her and requested her by name. So the decisions that she's about to make when she goes in and has her one chance with Xerxes are monumental. Monumental. What kind of clothing she's going to pick out, uh, what kind of uh, makeup she's going to wear, what kind of jewelry she's going to have on, and so forth and so on. It's a huge part, a huge moment, maybe the biggest moment of her life. And look in verse 15. What she does is kind of amazing. When it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she simply accepted the advice of Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the harem. She asked for nothing except what he suggested. And one commentary said this was a refusal of pagan luxury. She was refusing the garish extravagance in dress and adornment on the part of the other young women. And so she's giving up control. And she's just putting her life in God's hands. She's trusting Haggai. Um, she's just saying, uh, I give my soul to you, Lord, even in this terrible thing I'm about to have to do. I entrust myself to your care. I was talking to a student a couple of weeks ago in Panera, and um, I was asking her about um, you know, how Wake Forest had been. She said it was very difficult. She wanted to go home every weekend her first year. The social part was very difficult. She was finding that easier, but I asked her what her major was going to be, and that was a little stressful. And then I asked her what she wanted to do after she graduated, and that was very stressful. And then I said, do you think that God has a plan for your life? And I wasn't necessarily expecting her to say that she did. But she said, absolutely. In fact, she said, I I don't even know how I could have uh, gotten through the first couple of years at Wake Forest if I didn't believe that. She was like, I look around at my friends who don't believe in that, And I have no idea what keeps them going from day to day when this and that kind of random event occur and their lives feel so capricious. She's like, this is what gets me through, uh, knowing that I can put my life in the hands of God. And I recommended a book to her called Abandonment to Divine Providence. And uh, it was written by a French Jesuit in 1733. So, this is not by a, um, a Calvinist. This is not by a Presbyterian. This is not even by a Protestant. This is a Catholic writer, and uh, we Protestants don't have the corner on sovereignty and providence. This is a Catholic writer who wrote one of the strongest books I know of about giving yourself into God's hands: Abandonment to Divine Providence. He says, Nothing happens in this world but by the command of God. And whatever God wills or permits, he turns infallibly to the advantage of those who are submissive and resigned. And he continues. The soul abandoned to providence is as light as a feather and as liquid as water. It is pliant and easily receptive, like the atmosphere, which is affected by every breeze. Or water, which flows into any shaped vessel, exactly filling every crevice. And so, you know, whatever you're going through, and whatever difficulty has come up in your life, whatever terrible news you have received recently, and whatever dread or anxiety you feel, um, Esther would say to you, I totally understand, and yet I would implore you to abandon your soul to the providence of Yahweh. Because that's what I did. And she'd say, I know it's very hard, but don't resist God. And then she might even quote Psalm 131, which says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child. Like a weaned child with its mother is my soul within me. I I have an app on my, f- my watch, of all places. Uh, it's on my watch, and it's, it's an app that is called Breathe. And every day, the Breathe app uh, pops up a little signal that says you really ought to uh, open up this app now and uh, kind of calm yourself down. And so every now and then, I will do that. And uh, it says on my watch, be still and bring attention to your breath, whatever that means. And so I try to figure out like, okay, I think that's, I think I'm bringing attention to my breath. I'm trying to be still. And then about 10 seconds later, it says now inhale. And, uh, this little tiny flower starts to grow. This flower becomes this big blue flower on the screen and you're inhaling for a couple of seconds. And then it says now exhale and the flower goes back to nothing. And, uh, it's, it's really great. You know, it helps to, um, slow me down helps to get my breathing under control. Uh, I suppose it's kind of a practice of mindfulness. Uh, but what I really need is a, a spiritual breathe app where um, instead of just a flower growing and uh, diminishing, as it says, uh, inhale and exhale, I would love for uh, something like uh, be anxious about nothing to appear on my screen and then go away. And then maybe cast your cares on God. to to appear and then go away. Or trust in the Lord with all your heart. And if I could have both the breathing and the words from God spoken to me, to me directly, from God, from his scriptures, uh, then that would allow me to be vulnerable and to put myself in God's hands. The number four most popular TED Talk ever is called The Power of Vulnerability by Brene Brown. I encourage you to watch it. Uh, B-R-E-N-E. Brene Brown. And she says, if we want greater clarity in our purpose, if we want deeper and more meaningful spiritual lives, vulnerability is the path. And Esther would agree with that. And a commentary on Esther by Deborah Reed says the crisis of the story of Esther centers on Persian power versus Jewish Vulnerability, And when times are particularly critical, it seems that God chooses to work in unexpected ways through vulnerability. And Esther would say that's exactly right. And that's the first point. So the first point is that we can put our lives in the hands of God, even when things are very difficult. Jesus says it like this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the needy, blessed are the vulnerable, blessed are the broken, the cracked open, the not sure what to do next. Uh, there's a peculiar kind of favor and deep happiness that comes upon a person like that. That's what Jesus is saying. And that's what i gonna look at next, is this peculiar blessing of God's favor on his people. So, point one, vulnerability. Point two, Favor. And it says in verse 9, Haggai, and remember this is, uh, this is the guy who's um, in charge of helping her to look beautiful. So Hegai was very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. It doesn't say why he was impressed. Uh, but it does say in a more literal translation, if you have the ESV, I think the ESV is actually printed in your bulletin. If you look at the ESV, it, uh, it says that she pleased him and won his Favor, and that word is very important. The word is hesed, which is the Hebrew word for God's covenant faithfulness and loyalty, and unswerving love for His people. And uh, that word is used all throughout the Old Testament. And maybe grace would be the most similar New Testament word. It's a word that has an element of surprise and amazement to it. Like it's unexpected, it's unmerited, it's undeserved. In fact, it's demerited. We do things to merit the opposite of favor. We, we, we earn disfavor all the time. And yet God says to Abraham in 2000 BC, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to show you favor. Uh, you have no idea why it's you. I can't explain to you why it's you, but I'm just going to favor you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your people. And then the whole world will be blessed by you and your people. And that's where the whole this whole Hesed begins on Abraham and his children, and I would say that when Esther receives Haggai's favor, it's because she's a daughter of Abraham, and it's that ancient blessing on Abraham and the favor of God on Abraham that is uh, working through the years and comes to his little daughter Esther, and it passes through Moses who is speaking to Israel when he says, God didn't choose you and bless you to be his treasured people because you were impressive. Quite the opposite. He chose you even though you were the least impressive people. And that's a really important element of this favor. Uh, The favor, Christian, rests on people who are the least. As Paul says, not many of you are wise... Not many of you Corinthians were powerful. Not many of you Corinthians were of noble birth. You weren't well educated. You were kind of shady characters in Corinth. People didn't really want to hang out with you. And yet God chose what is foolish and weak and of no account. And that's the way this favor works. It comes out of the blue uh, for no reason. And it alights on sinful, vulnerable people. Like Daniel. Daniel was another prophet who was also in exile. He was living in the capital of the empire in Babylon. And he was very vulnerable to the whims of King Nebuchadnezzar. And yet it says that in Daniel 1.8, God gave Daniel favor. And it doesn't really explain why. But we see in the book of Daniel that Nebuchadnezzar just keeps showing him favor after favor after favor. Same thing with Joseph. Joseph uh, in Egypt... The powerful Egyptian empire, the powerful Pharaoh, and for whatever reason, Joseph just keeps getting promoted and promoted and promoted. So, Joseph, Daniel, Esther, uh, they were all favored. Uh, they were shown uh, Hesed. Uh, God blessed them. And you've got to be careful about making this mistake. It's, it's not that he blessed them because they were vulnerable or because they were honest or because they were light as a feather, they were able to be vulnerable and honest and show authenticity because they knew they were favored. But the favor is the source of all Christian ethics and all Christian morals. It's got to start with this, the favor of God, the hesed of God. And so all true children of Abraham, uh, we can give up control. We can rest in his delight undeserved, unearned. This is not a story about being Jewish. Um, This is a story about having God's favor. This is a story about anyone who believes in God's unmerited favor to sinners. Anyone who's a true child of Abraham. Notice the way that that Haggai favors her in verse 9. Four specific things. And by the way, this is not the prosperity gospel. This doesn't mean your life's going to go well in every way. But it does mean that that you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms on, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Every spiritual blessing has been given to us, but in this case, it's actually a physical things. So, verse nine, he quickly ordered a special menu—whatever that was, some kind of hummus and you know grains and uh, tabbouleh and you know couscous, things like that—that that would keep her healthy and strong. Maybe a vegan diet. Uh, He provided her with special beauty treatments. You know, imagine the perfect spa where everything they've ever learned about what keeps someone's skin perfect is done to Esther. And then seven specially chosen maids. I don't know what they were doing, but um, they were helping her in some way in her daily life. And then she has moved to the best place in the harem. So... Again, she would have no idea why this is happening. But uh, Haggai is favoring her. If you've seen the Hunger Games, I think of this as like that character Sinna. You Remember Sinna? Uh, he just keeps favoring Katniss. She doesn't really know why. But he keeps looking out for her. And uh, that's what Haggai is like. He's favoring her. And then it's not just Haggai. Verse 15 says she was admired by everyone who saw her. Everyone who saw her admired her. Maybe because she was someone who was clearly living under the favor of God. And even the king, and this is really the most important part, uh, the king, verse 17, loved Esther more than any of the other young women. And that's where the tension is broken, and that's when we finally realize she's going to be the one. She's going to be the one that he is always with. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head And declared her queen instead of Vashti. Something about her just, he went crazy. He saw her kind of like Richard Gere with Julia Robertson, Pretty Woman. You don't quite figure out why he was so infatuated with her. But it was something about how easygoing she was, how funny, how lighthearted she was. And Xerxes is crazy about Esther. Maybe it was because she was light as a feather, liquid as water, pliant, easily receptive, like the atmosphere affected by every breeze. It was certainly not because she was beautiful. They were all beautiful. And it was not because she was seductive and alluring. In fact, it was probably the opposite. She probably, well, we know from her um, abandonment to Haggai and whatever he chose for her, we, we know that she wasn't trying to impress. She didn't need to impress. She didn't need the, the gaze of men to be on her. Uh, she didn't need to really even try. She just knew she was favored. And uh, here's a really important part of being favored by God. It's like I said with Abraham. um, God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless your descendants. I'm going to make a great nation of you. Why? So that you could bless the world. So the favor of God does not rest on us uh, so that we can just hoard that favor. Uh, We are blessed to be a blessing. And so notice in verse 18 how you see this. Physically, the way that God's favor to Esther spills out onto the whole kingdom. To celebrate the occasion, Xerxes gave a great banquet in Esther's honor. For all his nobles and officials, declaring a public holiday for the provinces. And giving generous gifts, probably tax breaks, to everyone. So this is like Thanksgiving Day, but this would be Ishtar Day, or Esther Day. And many of them celebrated regularly. And I would say that uh, if you really believe that God favors you, and if you really believe that He pours out wild and crazy and undeserved blessings on you every day, uh, your cup is going to overflow the way it, it did with Esther here. And that favor is going to spill out onto your coworkers and roommates. And family and friends, and they're gonna thank you for that. Uh, because they're gonna notice that you clearly are someone who is receptive to the favor of God and know you don't deserve it. And maybe the only way you can really, really bless other people is when you know that you received that favor for no good reason on yourself. And then your love for them is without need, it's without condescension, it's without, re- it's without requiring their gratitude. And you just love them because you're just so full of blessing. And it spills out. Now one more thing about the way that Esther blessed other people. It was not only uh, Thanksgiving Day. It was not only the Ishtar Day. It was something much, much more important. that. I'm going to end with this. I think she was a type of Christ. I really do. That might sound crazy because of what she had to do. But... um, Look at verse 14. She was taken to the king's private rooms. Now, you, you can't whitewash what happened in there. Um, there's no doubt about what happened in there. There's also no doubt about how Esther felt about that. I mean, she was raised by Mordecai. Mordecai loved her. Uh, she was very aware of the sanctity of sexual intimacy. Um, this was something that would have been very hard, repulsive to her. And yet, This is the ultimate sacrifice, if you think about it. This willingness to become morally compromised. And to lose her virtue. And to lose her standing, even, in the community. And she does it to protect her people. She does it to keep the Jews safe. I mean, if she was with us today, um, you know, she might be excommunicated. Um, She would certainly not make the celebrity evangelical speaking circuit With all the conference speakers. uh, She would uh, be a kind of an outcast in a way. Or compromised. But uh, we know from the rest of the story. That she was sheltering her people. Under the shadow of her wings in a sense. And she went into the king knowing that uh, that was going to protect the Jews. And we learn later on not only that but by being in the presence of the king. She took a great risk to actually literally save the Jewish race that the king was about to wipe out except for Esther's presence right there in Susa and so if it had not been for Esther there would have been no Jews in uh, the year uh, 3 BC When, when the Messiah came to the world there would have been no cradle for him to be born into there would have been no people waiting for him There would have been no John the Baptist. There would have been no community of the Messiah that was gathered in expectancy to see him come. If not for Esther, there would have been um, no favor showered on the whole world by the Messiah, who also, it says in 2 Corinthians, was made to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. I'm not saying Esther was sinless. But I am saying that that exchange, something like that, was going on with Esther. It's going on in this meal. The central sacrament of all the churches of the world that's going on today all over the globe, and will be going on probably every minute for the rest of this day, is uh, this depiction of an exchange. It's not just a symbol. It's more than a symbol. In some way, we are participating in the very life of Christ As we take his righteousness into ourselves and we receive his unmerited favor and we give to him all of our sin. And uh, just like Esther, all of her sin was poured into the Messiah that she was looking forward to. And so at this table, there is real power to change. And there is real power today.